This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's get into one of our most read stories of the day. I have to say, the minute I saw this this morning, I I knew it was going top of the charts, as did you. Uh, Jesse Westbrook is with us. He runs our financial regulation coverage here in the U.S., joins us from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. All right. Mifid is one of these things, Jesse, that people are like, I Glaze know what over. it is. But <laughs> remind us what it is and what effect it has on Wall Street overall. Wait, we're talking about Mifid. I thought we got to talk about something else. No. <laughs> <laughs> you're on. You're on. <laughs> this so, is an important regulation because I feel like Europe has really, in many ways, led the way. Yeah, yeah. well, they've absolutely led the way. Mifid is this very esoteric rule um, that Europe passed a couple of years ago that made banks sell research separately to their brokerage clients, basically split it off from trading. In the U.S., we have a different system where you basically, if you're a big asset manager, you sign a contract with, say, Goldman Sachs, and it's a trading contract. Um, and with that, you are you also get research. So banks have long used this basically to subsidize their analysis desks because they are paying for it with these lucrative trading fees. Europe thought that was conflicted for all sorts of reasons, one being that, you know, the, the, the issues we saw back like 15, 20 years ago where analysts were giving high ratings to companies that their banks were underwriting. So Europe thought, well, if you, if you eliminate some of those conflicts, it would be better for everyone. Um, you know, research, the cost of research might go down. Uh, the, the research wouldn't be tied to the bank's business interests, so on and so forth. But this has all caused massive headaches for U.S. banks and U.S. regulators where we still follow a different system. hope that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Makes lots of sense. And so, I mean, people had been worried maybe about this happening. I mean, even in the reporting, it feels like, well, nobody's really shocked about this, except that... I mean, this fundamentally changes the business model for a lot of people who work on Wall Street on both sides of the equation, right? Yeah, I mean, so if you think about the fact that if you are a big asset manager and you no longer have to pay the trading fees to get the research, well, you might cut your contracts with, you know, five or six banks. I don't, I just want their research. I don't want them to trade for me. Um, I like Goldman for trading, so I'm going to get rid of the rest of them, just trade with Goldman, and I'll pay the six other banks that I want research from, and everyone else can sort of bug off. Um, so that's the issue for the asset managers. For, for the researchers themselves, I mean, you know, it could totally upend the, the business because, you know, we, we, we think, you know, I'm sure the researchers at banks think they're great. You know, there's sometimes been questions about whether their analysis, you know, hesitant to lower buy ratings, so on and so forth. But if you put them in a dynamic where they have to stand on their own and be, you know, a profit center or prove that their research is good in order to get people to pay for it as a standalone item, I mean, that's a completely different chain of events. I love what you just said, prove that their research is good. I mean, isn't that what they should be doing? I mean, no offense, but I feel like the analyst community- It's a knowing chuckle. <laughs> right, the analyst community, I 
think we've often scratched our head about calls or calls made kind of after a big move on a stock or, you know, the conflicts of interest. And to me, somehow we're getting pure when it comes to uh, the information coming out of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was the point of MIFID. And as if, if, if this is the way that, I mean, like a lot of things in finance or any other business, if people find a better way and the customer wants a better way, I mean, and customers start demanding of banks, look, we like the way Europe is doing it. We make you a lot of money, big bank. We want the same thing here. It's hard for the, it's hard for the Wall Street firms to say, no, you can't do that. Um, it is a client business, right? And so what do sort of U.S. regulators who you talk to all the time, you and your team talk to all the time, Jesse, I mean, did they see this as a key part to uh, of the sort of overall uh, better regulation of Wall Street? Where does this fit into sort of the broader landscape? Well, I don't know if they have an attitude that it's better regulation. I think that they basically are just in a scenario where – there's been just a lot of knock-on effects. Yeah. It's been something that they've had to deal with. I mean, you can't just sort of sit back and say, you know, we're going to ignore what, what Europe is doing because the, the, all these global regulations are almost like a tapestry, and once you start pulling on one thread, right. it, it, it sort of affects what different jurisdictions do. And it really has been difficult for the SEC because, I mean, I don't want to get into it because it's almost – you know, just too hard to follow. But in the U.S., if you if you are a broker and you sell standalone research, you technically have to register as right. an investment advisor. So, and with that comes all sorts of new investor protection rules, which brokers don't don't want those burdens. So the SEC has really had to grapple with that issue. Like they don't want to just rip up their rule book and start over because that's a big pain in the you know what. But help me just really quickly. Banks can still set their own policy. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, quickly, yeah. the the SEC, the SEC sort of, you know, they they because they don't want to rip up their rule book. They've done things like, well, you know, we didn't mean you couldn't do that, or we didn't mean you had to do this. So, so banks are still, you know, sort of interpreting that, you know, pursuing the policies that they want to pursue. But in a lot of instances, they're having to pursue the policies that customers want them to pursue. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, it's great reporting. Thank you for helping us make sense of it, Jesse. Uh, as you well know, this is very, very closely watched here on Wall Street. I mean, we are talking about people's livings in, in some way. You and I both, Carol, know tons of uh, Wall Street analysts. And uh, so it's really interesting to get a really good and smart take on this. Jesse well, Westbrook, it, thank you so much. that the structure's changing, right? Totally. And a lot has been changing slowly And we've got more on that ahead. Yep. Uh, even when it comes to IPOs, how you look when you go public, how your board looks. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. It's a really, really interesting and important story. Goldman Sachs leading the way. it is. Certainly women and men having different experiences on Wall Street. We all know about that. We've talked about it a lot here at Bloomberg, done a lot of reporting, uh, certainly on our different platforms. Well, this story plays into that. It is among our most read on the Bloomberg. It's about women shattering um, a particular glass ceiling. And now, as usual, men want in. Um, I know. I'm just going to say it. All yeah, right. It's true. <laughs> you Everything you say is true. <laughs> you looked at me like, I'm not going to go there. There she goes again. <laughs> Alistair Marsh is ESG reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from London. Alistair, we've been talking about your story a bunch. We're talking about the world of ESG. Men, tell us about the difference that we've seen in terms of men and women uh, pursuing careers when it comes to ESG here. 
Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. I mean, ESG is um, one of those labels, essentially, it's talking about a whole, well, it's hard to necessarily distinguish exactly what it is, but it's trying to use your capital to do good or at least not do harm. And you see that particularly with the BlackRock announcement recently that they're going to use their resources towards uh, uh, helping the fight against climate change. And this idea has been, or this uh, domain has been kind of somewhat neglected for many years. There have been people on Wall Street and in the city of London who've been working in uh, these kind of jobs that used to be called responsible investing or social investing. They've been doing this kind of thing since the 1990s, but really they've been just people in the corner, largely ignored, with no P&L, no importance, nothing. But now, given the increased focus on uh, gender diversity on Wall Street and and kind of more more broadly in corporate America and the focus particularly on climate and the kind of climate emergency that we're facing, these uh, roles are becoming more and more prominent. And interestingly, they're staffed by women. So you actually have this strange dynamic where all of a sudden a number of women are elevated to positions of uh, incredible seniority because every CEO and senior man- senior executive on Wall Street has to know what they are doing as when it comes to climate change or kind of social issues because really the last the last thing you want now is to be a company that is uh, financing fossil fuels or in some way being aligned with the, uh, the heavy carbon economy. You want to be able right. to say that you're transitioning your business to being green and sustainable and all the rest. I have so to all say, of a sudden these positions are. Forgive, yeah, me, forgive me for breaking in, but I have to say one thing. I was um, participating in a panel on women in media last night, and there was a, a woman who has been very established in the media world, but initially when she started out, she went into an area where, for the most part, men weren't interested, yeah. and then built up something, right. and then all of a sudden everybody was interested. So so go ahead, Jason. Well, Alistair, you know, one of the things that we wanted to ask you was, you know, part of the reason you guys are writing about this, and we should point out that, an incredibly well-timed initiative, a brilliantly timed initiative here at Bloomberg. Bloomberg Green uh, launched this week a huge uh, entrance in many ways globally, but especially uh, at Davos. This was top of mind, top of the agenda at Davos, ESG investing, investing climate, et cetera. Why is it having such a moment right now uh, in your estimation? Well, the science is pointing. I mean, well, to, to be frank, it's kind of amusing in some ways because we've known about global sure. warming for decades. Um, it's not a new idea, but it just seems to be the science is pointing more and more to a crisis moment where we need to do something now. If we don't take action now, then we're really going to be in trouble. And at Davos, you have a combination of people like you know Greta Thunberg, who has this sort of social momentum behind her, but then you also have not just sort of activists who, I mean, she was dismissed by Trump and various others at Davos. But you also have people like Mark Carney, who is kind of cut cut from the Davos cloth in many ways, a former Goldman banker, a central banker, you know, clearly very respected. And he's also banging the drum. So it just seems to be um, to have elevated to the top of the global agenda, whether in corporate life or you know, on the street. Right. It seems to be, I guess, that we're at a moment of crisis where something has to be done and therefore 
Yeah, I mean, it, right. you, yeah. cynically speaking, you could say Davos needs a theme last year. It was diversity. This year it's climate. Maybe next year it'll be something else. But uh, Well, but <laughs> it's an important moment uh, for sure. And regardless of what you think about Davos and its importance or lack thereof, it does tend to set the agenda for the year when it comes to CEOs, heads of state, and others that are in attendance. Alistair Marsh, uh, ESG reporter for Bloomberg, thank you for uh, keeping a little part of your Friday evening open for us. He joined us on the phone from Greatly London. Greatly appreciate and, it, because it's uh, a great story. It's a great story. And really, as I said, part of this massive initiative, amazingly timed, uh, you know, better to be smart than lucky in some ways. Bloomberg really all over this uh, at a moment where, as Alistair said, it's been around for a while, and yet it's having a moment. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's jump into one of my favorite stories of the week for sure. Uh, it's written by Ira Boudway. This guy is the hardest working man in Hollywood this week. He's got two great stories in this issue of the magazine. Uh, this one's about Nets owner, Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai, uh, talking about his ownership talking about China, talking about firing his president, like so many things. Uh, Ira's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Uh, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, he's down in D.C. in our 99.1 studio there. Ira, first of all, congrats on a very big week. And tell us about Joe Sott. Uh Joe was a big man in the news in October. And I think unless you were a follower of Alibaba, maybe you'd never heard of him until he bought the Nets uh, outright, uh, became 100% owner of the Nets in September. And then a couple weeks later, Daryl Morey's tweet goes out supporting the Hong Kong protests. And Joe writes an open letter uh, basically saying, Daryl Morey, you don't know what you're talking about. And this is something that people in China are going to be deeply offended by. And, and suddenly this was this rocked the NBA and still reverberating around the league. So... Okay, what a tricky position to be in. First of all, though, I love how you kind of set the stage um, about Sai, because I think what's interesting is you say, hey, he's this multicultural, I just was looking at the words, multicultural intercontinental identity, right? Mm -hmm. He just crisscrosses having had an education here in the United States, uh, where he was born. Like, he's just at this interesting crossroads Mm -hmm. um, to be kind of an ideal communicator, one would think, on a topic like this. Yeah, I mean, he has an, an... really unique background if well at least unusual i mean he's born in taiwan at the age of 13 he goes to an elite prep school in new jersey goes from there there to yale to yale law works as a tax lawyer works in private equity jumps on with alibaba very early on and becomes for alibaba their bridge between east and west because he can take jack ma's vision and translate it to the world of finance and to the legal world and uh and so he becomes you know fantastically wealthy and that same identity that you're talking about now has left him sort of as the bridge for the nba they hope uh in in dealing with china well was he a bridge i'm sorry joel forgive me was he a bridge on this though I mean, the league was in a tricky spot. So, so when Joe wrote, when Joe Sai wrote this letter, uh, the league, I asked them about it because Joe said he sent it to the league first, uh, and it was a pretty controversial thing. And the league said we didn't look at it before it went out. They did not want to have any ownership over that. And I think the league's basically trying to ride this line of anybody can say what they want. What we are about is free speech and using the game as a platform for people to understand each other. 
but this is a tricky thing when you've got uh, you know people in Hong Kong in the streets battling police. Uh, it's sometimes you got to take a side, and I think that's what they're dealing with now. Which the, you know that thing about voice is especially unique in the NBA, of course. Uh, so to that end, what did what did Joe see in the Nets? Why the Nets? Uh, he was really just opportunistic, is the way he put it to me. Uh, Mikhail Prokhorov uh, came to him, the the previous owner, the Russian billionaire. They were looking to sell it, and they said, you know, we're probably going to give you half now. And then and then Joe said, well, if we can do a deal where I get half now and the rest later, I'll do it, uh, because he liked the finances of the NBA. You know, one interesting thing about why the Nets, while he was doing that, the Houston Rockets came on the market, the uh, the team where Daryl Morey works, China's favorite team for a long time because of Yao Ming. Which he, that would seem like a natural slam dunk, right? Just yeah. like pick up that one. Sure, but he said basically he didn't want to go to Houston all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Brooklyn, New York, I mean, that just location was a big right. piece of it. Well, and it's it's been an amazing story. The Nets themselves have been an amazing story. Sorry, Knicks fans who happen to be listening. I mean, they've become like the team uh, here in New York. Yeah, and that was, you know, on for Joe, that was luck. Yeah. So that rebuilding plan was in place under Sean Marks even before he bought his first half of the team. And then that plan of basically clearing salary cap space to go after big free agents this past summer, which worked spectacularly, getting Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant becoming the buzz of the league. Still see how that pans out if they actually get a championship out of it or become, you know, a real contender. But for now, it's... At least in this market, they are the most interesting thing going, and one of the most interesting teams in the league. And that's all. Joe kind of just walked into that, but but yeah, it's it's quite a, a valuable thing he's got. So Ira, where does it go from here? Because obviously the controversy that he kind of found himself in the middle of um, wasn't expected, um, and yet you know the China and the NBA have a long history already. Yeah, I mean, one thing, uh, you know, the, one of the things that happened in the immediate aftermath of Maury's tweet was CCTV and Tencent pulling games. And Tencent has already come back to the table. They're starting to show games again. They're the digital partner for the, for the NBA in China. CCTV is still not. And one of the things in my reporting for this story that I, that I heard was that the league is hopeful that at All-Star Game in February, which was the first thing they ever showed back in 1987, mm-hmm. the first NBA game on in China, uh, will, that the league is going to be back on there. So, so it seems like they are in the background very quietly, sort of patching things up, uh, and nobody really wants to say too much about it because they don't want it to blow up again, uh, and then they want it to get back to normal. Well, We're, speaking of that, though, Sai has lots to lose, too, if he alienates Beijing. I mean, there's a couple different layers in this story that we need to remember. Right. And that was one of the things that was suggested to me in, in my reporting is that, you know, Joe is in no position to really show even the slightest solidarity with the Hong Kong protests yeah. because uh, Alibaba does business in China and uh, and Joe cannot. And Joe being from Taiwan, which is sort of got its own right. issues with the right. mainland, there's going to be a certain level of suspicion around yeah. him and his loyalties. So he has to be out front saying I'm on your side here, China. Well, and meanwhile, here in New York, he made some swift moves uh, uh, there at the Nets. And you talked to him uh, about the uh, the, his dismissal of a key executive. Tell us about that. Yeah. So one side note in all this was when uh, when Joe became uh, majority owner, he announced that David Levy, the longtime Turner executive, basically ran the show there for 33 years, was coming over uh, to be his sort of day to day owner of the Nets, but also take over kind of leadership of this whole sports portfolio and try to make it something you know that had some synergy to it and bring it all together and 
less than two months later, Levy leaves. And yeah. everyone's kind of wondering what that was about, whether it had anything to do with the China situation. Uh, and the way Joe explained it to me was that basically they wanted somebody to do not just the the big vision piece, but the day-to-day details, mm-hmm. the, the P&L statements, and that David having been at the top of Turner for 33 years, thought, no, that's not what I do. Right. I'm, I'm here for the vision, and I'll hire other people to do that stuff. And wow. so they said, Look. Well, it's a great story and one that we know you'll continue to follow. One of two big stories that Ira Boudway has in the magazine this week. We're going to talk to him maybe next week about his other story ahead of the big game because there is a betting angle to it. For the Check record, yes. I asked for three. Yeah. I, I was like, go for the trifecta. You're so close. Exactly, exactly. So it's a failure, basically. Yeah. All right, Ira Boudway, underachiever and global business reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel Weber uh, down the line with us in our nation's capital. He joined us from our 991 studio. Listen, that's how you make your great magazine. Well done, Ira. Two stories, and they're all great reads. corporate board, man. It may be changing. It could be the end of an era. The white all-male board. Yeah. Jason, go figure. It could be coming to an end. The operative word you used in that uh, lead-in was man. <laughs> exactly. All-male. Yeah. Often all-white male. Um, all right. So this story is among our most read. I got to say, Jason and I have been talking about a lot in the newsroom. Jeff Green wrote it. The one and only Jeff Green. He's managing diversity reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from Detroit. Love this story. Jeff Green, what's going on? Oh, just another day in paradise. (laughs) Join the crowd, join the crowd. No, but this is important because, right, all the research out there about the importance of having diversity in boards, having more women on your boards, and yet you look at corporate boards and they're still consistently tending to be all male. Yeah, and the knee-jerk reaction here is just to say, oh, Goldman's just doing a publicity stunt. But to say it, I mean, to look at the reaction on Twitter and in LinkedIn and other places, they're taking a lot of heat for saying this. So it's not something you just casually toss out there. This is one of those things that's come out recently where it's like they've said something that no one said before. And remind us what they said. Okay, so what they said was, in the future, we will not underwrite any IPOs where the board doesn't include at least one diverse member. And starting next year, it needs two. And they define diverse as being a woman, a person of color, or somebody who uh, is LGBTQ. So... Which is also new. I've, n- I've never really seen anyone sort of expand that that definition to include LGBT. I do feel like David Solomon's uh, Goldman Sachs is going to be a very different uh, Solomon Brothers. We've already seen it. And Goldman Sachs. Um, oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? Oh, well, he said Solomon Brothers. I did say Maybe Solomon he's Brothers. Just gonna rename it. That would <laughs> Man, be. A, that has... would also be bold. <laughs> That's a blast from the past. Forgive me, David Solomon, of course, of Goldman Sachs. Um, but I do think Jeff, he really is, you know, trying to push for change in a big way when it comes to not only his firm but maybe much more broadly uh, in terms of Wall Street. Yeah, and I mean, this is the the kind of thing when you know when I first saw it, I, I was thought this, you know, I wasn't really sure like how many IPOs did they do, where mm. there were um, you know, no women or no people of color, but they did do some. I mean, they have they said less than ten percent of the IPOs they have done in the last two years meet that criteria, but that means that 
they would be giving up at least something if they move forward with this. So it's not a it's not a nothing burger kind of announcement. Well, and it definitely got a lot of attention, like you said, on the terminal well, and on the web. I just have to say something because I remember somebody bringing this to my attention. WeWork initially it was an all male board yeah. of directors, and I don't know if it changed at some point, but it was just fascinating that here it is, kind of an innovative company. You know, and you think, okay, they're going to think differently. In, in, in yeah. quotation marks. Well, you know, and this gets to, and Jeff and I feel like this is becoming a bigger subject, you know, kind of where the rubber meets the road, a lot of greenwashing. And we'll see, ultimately, you know, that, that Goldman lives up to kind of its promise here and whether others follow suit, that they actually, it's not just talk, it's a lot more significant than that. Well, I mean, I predict that what will actually happen is there'll be companies that come forward and they'll be sure to have right. a diverse board. But, you know, it's not going to be that companies are going to say, you know what, we don't need Goldman you know, help underwrite. It's going to be the behavior is <laughs> going to change. Um, there's one interesting thing is they did not include Asia in this pledge. Um, it, 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 it is kind of complicated when you look at the world and you say we want a diverse board. In the U.S., that means racial and ethnic and gender. In the rest of the world, it typically means gender. Because if you were to use their criteria in Asia, you know, an all-Asian male board would still meet the criteria in the U.S. as a diverse board. It, it gets complicated when you try to take like one-size-fits-all diversity and spread it around the planet. And Asia is the furthest behind, so they said they're, they they will consider extending it there. So, th so even they're acknowledging the difficulty of this this sort of uh, pledge. And so, how soon, or do you expect that other banks will follow suit? I mean, Goldman is a, a not a not insignificant player in all of this. The biggest underwriter uh, in in many by many measures. Is this something that the Morgan Stanleys, the J.P. Morgans? And, you know, others, the Bank of America's of the world, just they're going to have to do this? Or what's your read? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I reached out to J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley. J.P. Morgan pointed out that they try to help companies be, be more diverse, but they don't have such a pledge. And Morgan Stanley didn't really have didn't have a comment. And you can look at what's happened. Intel just said we're going to release like 3,000 fields of data that we gave the EEOC, this, the most detailed pay and race data anyone's ever released with the hope that other people would follow them. Citigroup said we're going to give our, you know, our pay gap in a in the way that they haven't in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and neither of those companies have elicited a whole bunch of, of, of copycats either. So, you know, when you stick your neck out the first time, it's, it is a question, how long can people resist? Right. No, it's great. And uh, we know that you follow this so closely. So, Having you, you know, put together this story with a lot of context was really useful. So we'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, check it out because it's going to be a story, certainly, that folks uh, related to Wall Street are going to be talking about at their cocktail parties this weekend. The ski slopes, flying back from Davos, wherever they may be. On the be. plane, Alpha Alpha Club down glass of wine. Uh, in D.C. Did you see what yeah. Goldman did? Yeah, like, exactly. What are you going to do? Right. What are you going to do, bro? Yeah, what'd you do for me? Okay, got it. All right, Jeff Green, Managing Diversity Reporter, one of our faves, joining us on the phone from Detroit, talking Goldman. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. George Mateo is with us, Chief Investment Officer at Key Private Bank, on the phone from Cleveland. George, uh, happy Friday. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So, uh, interesting week. A little bit more, I feel like, risk off, certainly, in today's trade and for the week overall. Uh, what are this, kind of the key things, especially the virus? How do you factor that in right now to your investment thesis? Yeah, good afternoon, guys, and, and thanks for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, so thanks, thanks <laughs> Thank a lot. Thank you. Nice. Yeah, and happy Friday to you as well. Yeah, uh, interesting close for the week, for sure. Interesting start for the year, right? A couple of missile strikes early on, and now we've got yeah. this uncertainty as well. So a lot going on already in 2020. You know, I think typically these things are pretty short-lived by their nature. I mean, it's unfortunate, and this is still early days, so we probably have a lot more to know before we really call this uh, over, by all means. But you know, typically these events are, are short-lived and typically provide buying opportunities over time for those people who are patient. And so, George, is this the sort of thing we've been asking uh, this of a lot of our investor guests, is especially ones who are you know hearing from customers and, and colleagues? Is this something where your your phone starts ringing, your you know you start getting emails from from clients essentially saying, "What do I do here?" Yeah, not not just yet. Um, I think it's a little early for that, but I think it could materialize in something like that. I mean, look, it, the overall backdrop we think is is not spectacular, but it's stabilizing. We've seen some recent kind of uh, uh, green shoots emerge. Other parts of the country, other parts of the world are starting to see some tepid signs of improvement from a year ago. So we, overall, the backdrop isn't all that bad right now and pretty supportive for people just kind of staying pat and almost doing nothing, staying uh, with some exposure to stocks. Interest rates have come down a lot, have been very stimulative, and overall we think the backdrop is still pretty favorable. I want to get right to your stock picks because Jason and I love to talk names. One of them that you like is NVIDIA, uh, yeah. and that company will report earnings next month. It's up already 6% so far this year, and it gained uh, 76% in 2019. That whole chip space was on fire. Why do you think that there's more momentum? Because if you look at the PE or the forward-looking PE, it seems like it's getting a little bit pricey here. Yeah, it's getting a little expensive, and the stocks in general have probably pulled ahead of some of the gains already for this year, but we still think NVIDIA is a category killer. You know, they really are the premier operator in the space, uh, protecting some of the old line manufacturing industrial sectors and whatnot. Typically, though, we think there's probably a virtuous cycle that's starting to build, though, and, um, you know, as some of these old businesses start to automate more, start to use more of the components in their uh, particular systems, uh, we think NVIDIA is going to be a winner over, over time. We also generally like the view right now that maybe people ought to be coming back to international markets. They've been really uh, under love for a long period of time. They've underperformed. Invini derives a significant portion of its revenues from overseas, and we think that's also going to be a bit of a tailwind going forward. Talk to us a little bit about MasterCard. We've been talking a bit about the uh, credit card names. Discover, uh, your worst performer in the S&P today. MasterCard is another, and Carol mentioned this earlier in the show, uh, that had a great run last year as well. What do you like about that one? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one also that's probably pretty widely owned, but we still think it's deserved to be so. I mean, I think it's still a category killer in its own right. It's actually doing things a bit better than Visa overall. It's really sticking in its core payments business. But we think there's still a lot of tailwind left to this name in particular, going that there's a, an ongoing growth in middle class adoption for these type of services. We like the payment sector overall. We think there's going to really be some benefits for them as, as they really adopt more alternative payment methods overall. So sure. we think the opportunity. Uh, yeah. I do wonder about like MasterCard and Visa, man. They have just been on a tear the last few years. I mean, MasterCard alone, excuse me, 
was up about 58% last year. And I do wonder, is there a disruptor out there? I mean, right now, you know, they don't care who does the transaction as long as they get a piece mm-hmm. of it. But is there a disruptor out there that we should all be watching that could change uh, the game for the likes of MasterCard and Visa? Not at this point. I mean, again, I think they have kind of a nice, healthy oligopoly going right now that uh, that could go on for a while longer. So I think that there's some, some attractive businesses that could invite other entrants over time. Uh, it's a very low-intensive, capital-intensive business, generating high margins, high return on capital, and a great cash uh, generation profile. But we think they're still uh, ways ahead of, of other men- or, uh, entrants that are likely to emerge over time. So we really like their prospects going forward. Uh, let's talk a little bit about market access. Uh, that's one obviously near and dear to a lot of uh, yeah. our listeners' yeah, hearts. Sure. You know, uh, trading in the financial sector. Uh, it's bond trading, right? Yeah, really corporate bond trading in particular. And, and there we think, again, a lot of uh, runway left in that story. You know, there's only about 20% of the U.S. bond market that's traded electronically. In the overseas markets, it's close to 50 or 60%. So we think as the U.S. markets become more um, electronically trading oriented on the bond side anyway, there's some good Apple opportunities for them as well. It's kind of what happened in the equity markets probably 20 years ago. So, we, again, we think mm. there's some, uh, some long runway there for, for market access, too. All right. Interesting. And one uh, last one. Is it, um, I was afraid, Zoetis? I was for, Zoetis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ZTS. Um, animal health, I feel like that has been a category so many of us have been talking about over the last couple of years. You spend a lot of money on Scout. I do spend a lot of money mm-hmm. on Scout. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Stocks up a little bit this year, up more than 50% last year. Uh, the thinking here? Yeah, the thinking here, I, I agree with you. We've got a, a new puppy at home, and he consumes a lot of food and a lot of medications. It seems. So consume I'm, a lot of everything, I'm, I'm, right? I'm a fan. Yeah, for sure. And people I've kind of seen firsthand spend more money on their pets than their kids sometimes. But I think there's some real good, uh, strong momentum there from the industry perspective. You know, this is a sector that is less uh, capital intensive. The cost of drug development, for example, is a lot cheaper than uh, it is for human therapeutics. Products are more durable. There's usually a lot less uh, generic competition and really no third-party payer risk, which is really something that uh, really plagues a lot of other healthcare names. So, again, here, too, we think there's really some, some really strong fundamental backdrop behind the story. All right. And it, your biggest worry uh, just in the last 30, 45 seconds here as we go through the rest of 2020 with all of these uh, crosswinds, tailwinds, however you want to characterize it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've come a long way. I think there's still some concern about what could happen from the trade front, right? I think that's been a really nice uh, tailwind of late where that risk has been kind of pushed to the sideline. There's still a chance that maybe uh, Trump comes back and decides to yank the proverbial football away from Charlie Brown like Lisa, that uh, Lucy used to do, and that could create some more volatility in the second half. Uh, but again, we think the growth backdrop is, 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 again, not spectacular, but stabilizing overall. Uh, the financial sector is on, on great footing, and the consumer is still feeling pretty good. So our outlook is actually pretty positive for the rest of this year. All right. We're going to leave it there. George Mateo, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at a key private bank. He joined us on the phone from Cleveland. Zoetis, by the way, recently hitting an all-time high of $141.93 a share. That was back on uh, January 21st. Zoetis. Zoetis. Nice pronunciation there. Thank you. Well, I you know, I always that. love when these companies get spun off, and you're like, what? what's uh, with no. that name? Truist. Right, because wasn't that... Pfizer's company? Uh, I believe it was. That was spun off, was. Um, yeah. I think, or, or Wythe or one of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not to be confused with Zoomies. <laughs> Nicely done. I believe it's Zoomies. 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 We still talk about that. You at call Zoomies and oh, I call Zoomies. Oh, Carol. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.